Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has been getting so much better lately with breaking news, interactive stories, dope graphics, and more. So go ahead right now before this episode begins, pull out your phone and give it a follow at the handle DLSportsCom on Instagram. That's at DLSportsCom on Instagram. Thanks and enjoy the show. On today's episode of On the DL Podcast, we have the Open Championship Recap, a great interview with Alabama sports fan Adam Wheel. We talked about the upcoming football season for Alabama and other Tide-related subjects, so definitely tune in for that. NHL free agency, some small bites, and finally, this week's edition of Thornton's Betting Tavern. This episode is jam-packed with so many different things, so let's not waste any time and get right into it. Welcome to episode number three of On the Deal podcast, and Cameron Smith is your 2022 Open Champion winner. Wow, just what a performance by him on the final round today. I'm recording this podcast literally moments after the final hole was concluded. Um, Smith was sitting at minus 12, along with Cameron Young. Before the day started, both of the Camerons were shooting at an elite level, and they were paired together. So both of them were pushing each other to catch McElroy, who was sitting at minus 16 before the final round began play on Sunday. This is how the story went. You know, it was never that Rory was playing subpar or even average. He did not choke this lead away. He did not blow this major title that he's been on the verge of for so long. And it's felt like so long that he has not won a major. And he played a great round of golf today. Um but at the end of the day, he could never get those birdie putts to fall down the stretch on the back nine, and which is where Smith's charge really began to take notice. Today, he two-putted every single hole. Uh, you, have to, you have to get those to fall whenever everyone else is shooting at, at an elite level as they were today. And it might have even been, uh, if I believe that correctly, the commentators were saying all day long, this is a record pace that, that Smith is shooting at right now. So I, I, I cannot confirm the final result of that round for him today, but I do know that he shot minus eight on the day, which is terrific for him. And it seemed that every single one of Rory's putts were either in and out or just outside. It would just break the rim or just barely fall short, which was just so unfortunate uh, for him and for me to watch because, you know, I am a, I am a Rory McIlroy fan. Uh, I feel like most people are. Most people recently at least have been on his side with, Everything going on with the with, with Live Tour and the PGA debate, uh, he's definitely been standing up for the PGA, and um, it's been a great thing to see. So I'm sure everybody did feel for him because, as I said before, he has not won a major since the 2014 PGA Championship. So over 2,000 days it's been for him, and it would have been so special for him to win this because you know this was his window that he had to win at St. Andrews. He might not have a shot like this again on, on, on St. Andrew's course. And that's important because they only play the Open at St. Andrew's every five years or so, which is something I didn't even know. I'm a golf casual, so I did not know that there were different venues at the Open Championship, but St. Andrew's is only played every five years. So I've heard a debate of, over the course of the week, me gearing up trying to get more more interest into this Open Championship I heard some golfers and former golfers, analysts say that Open Championship is more impactful, is more of an impactful win than winning the Masters simply because of the rare air it does carry. And I could definitely understand that argument, although I believe that the green jacket is maybe the coolest trophy you can win in sports uh, simply because it's just such an elite club to join. And it's so cool that they literally have a jacket for the trophy and it's something you could just flex and wear out whenever you want to it's the green jacket it's awesome but you know it, it would have been great to see Rory win today uh but that does not diminish the career he's had he still has a lot of golf in front of him he could easily win many more majors ahead of him um you know he's been a runner-up and a top 10 finisher at a lot of these major championships lately so we just hope that you know that he could eventually 
get over that hump he seems to be on. But he's playing great golf, so you can't take away the performance that he had this week at St. Andrews. And on the flip side, let's talk about Smith and his heroics today. He just charged his way to this championship. He played terrifically, especially holes 8-13. to 13. If anyone was watching, he made birdies on every single one of these holes. So like I said, the start of the back nine was where the magic happened for him. He executed perfectly and hit five birdies in a row to take the lead and really never looked back and never seemed nervous. He was never out of sync. He was dialed in. He seems like a great guy, stand-up guy. Uh, I love Australian people, so they're just cool. So it was awesome to see an Aussie take the W, and he looks like such a G with his mustache and mullet. Looks like a old pledge trainer or something. As for Cameron Young... He also, like I said, played very well, but it never seemed like he was going to take control. He was in the passenger seat of that duo of the Camerons the whole time, which is a crazy thing to say for how well he shot today. He shot minus seven on the round, but the only big time shot he had was the amazing eagle putt he had on the 18th, which temporarily tied him with Smith, but then Smith immediately sunk his birdie putt to solidify the lead and win the open at minus 20 which was an incredible round of golf. Incredible. It was just an all-around great final day. There was some drama with the comeback. That kind of happened earlier on on the back nine, but it was nothing too crazy. I would have loved a playoff, considering it was only like noon when the final round wrapped up because they were playing overseas. But it's all right. You know, I still got to get up and enjoy a little bit of my morning before I enjoyed some great golf. I want to note on the tournament itself, I love just dissecting sports venues and ranking them and observing them. And as for the tournament itself, I did love the atmosphere and learning more about the course of St. Andrews. It's uh, From what I heard and what I learned watching over the weekend, it's a very deceptive course. It looks like it could be very easy, but it has some trickery within it. There's some massive, what they call, quote, coffin bunkers within this course that are just insane if you were watching or if you're... If you're curious about how they look now, just go ahead and pull out your phone, look up on Google, Coffin Bunker St. Andrews. The walls are so much higher than a normal bunker, and they're extremely difficult to, to get out of. They're like layered, and they're like little tombs. That's why they call them the Coffin Bunkers. And I believe that someone, I think it was Friday when I was watching the Open, Tiger got caught in a bunker and it was the same bunker that Jack Nicholas took him 15 attempts to get out of. 15 attempts. So, obviously, shows you the gravity of the trickery this course has to present. It's not only that. There's also some thick grass in the rough, which can be tricky as well. What I noticed the most, besides the coffin bunkers that stood out, were the hard greens. Uh, the greens were very fast almost cement-like, and they just roll and roll and roll if you don't hit them properly. So it was very neat to notice the cadency of the greens and how each golfer would approach the greens differently than they might in America. You definitely had to lie up very short so that I can continue to roll. You did not want to overhit something or it's just going to keep rolling 100 feet. So that was very interesting to look, to look at. As for the crowd and overall atmosphere, it looked amazing. The fans were definitely rowdy after all the tee shots, and everyone seemed to be very much into it, uh, which is great to see, always great to see in the sport of golf. The architecture of the clubhouses and hotels around it were very neat. Definitely would love to visit sometime. I've never, I've only been out of the country one time, and that was in Canada, so I really don't even count that. But I'm always very intrigued by the overseas architecture just in general, so it was really cool to see how that was presented on the golf course at St. Andrews. It was very, very cool. Um, and I could see how historic and special it is to play there. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention Tiger Woods. Obviously, I just mentioned him with the, with the bunker situation, comparing him to Jack and Nicholas's shot, but Tiger didn't play well this weekend. He finished the tournament at plus nine, didn't even make the cut. So that was sad to see. I did have a lot of friends, you know, bet on him to make to make the cut. They're obviously pissed about that. But it's just sad to see him finish up his round on the short end of things early on Friday morning. And he took a f emotional final stroll around St. Andrews because he knows this is the last time he's going to play that course, most likely in a competitive setting. Like I said before, 
this course is only played every five or so years, so it's not like any other major or any other invitational where, oh, there's always next year. Maybe he can get one next year. It's a lot different. And we have to just remember, people, that this dude is playing on one leg. And it's a miracle that he's even playing the sport of golf currently. And I'm sure y'all have heard that on other networks, other podcasts, but it's true. And hopefully he can just get one last major title to cap off everything before his retirement. And honestly, if the PGA wants to rig it next year at one of the majors, like the Masters, so be it. Let it happen. I think everyone would approve. I think everyone would be on board with that. It would be a terrific thing to see. Obviously, I'm joking, but we need another major title from Tiger Woods before he's before his career is all said and done, his competitive career at least. Obviously, he's going to keep playing the game of golf. That's what all golfers do when they retire, but we just need one more. We need, we need one more. This is a very uh, kind of a nitpicky thing to talk about, but I loved the graphics that the NBC network had for this tournament on the TV. Like the leaderboard was very sleek and clean. And I know this is hilarious and I'm like dissecting this right now. Like I'm some like professor, but I thought the lit up like 150 symbol on the open was so dope. And the little strings that floated around the side of it were also so cool. That's such a weird thing to comment on, but I know I'm not the only one who notices these things. It definitely matters to the viewers, those little things, because if you've ever watched a broadcast or you compare broadcasts based on their scoreboard designs, their scorecard designs, or theme songs they play, tell me you guys don't do that too. I know I'm not alone in this boat. And like, I, like for example, I prefer, for NFL broadcasts, I prefer NBC over ESPN, Fox, uh, Thursday night football, all that simply because of the little jingle and everyone knows the NBC, the, the Sunday night football jingle. Come on. I mean, instant chills, instant chills. Anyways, it was an awesome round of golf and I'll find any excuse to sit on the couch and watch golf for five plus hours on a Sunday. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? But it was a great, great thing to dissect. Very, very much looking forward to other tournaments, other majors that are going on in the future. And I'm just really now it's time for football season. Ready to move on to that. And that's a perfect segue to our next topic. Nick Saban on the Always College Football Podcast. Free shout out to them great podcast you haven't listened to it before they were talking about what we've talked about before on this podcast which is conference realignment within the ncaa and he said this my biggest concern is competitive balance when talking about conference realignment those were the words of nick saban via the always college football podcast as he mentioned the biggest concern he has is competitive balance within within the ncaa what he means by that is there's going to be even more division than you think there already is with the same teams that are playing in the college football playoff every single year or the SEC dominating everyone or the Big Ten for that matter. He is warning you guys. And this isn't the first time he's warned others of the change that is yet to come. If you remember this, before the NIL deals were a thing, we heard rumblings of them coming to life, and Saban told you guys, I'm not sure if you want to do that, because the rich will only get richer. That is exactly what has happened in the NCAA, because you see Alabama getting these amazing transfers from schools to make them better. And as Adam and I mentioned in our conversation, that's exactly what's happening here. It's like free agency, and all, the, all these athletes in the transfer portal are unrestricted free agents. And they want to go to the best team that's going to give them the most money. So that's why Alabama is absolutely thriving in this environment. Teams like Alabama, Texas A&M, Ohio State, Oklahoma, USC, those are the cream of the crop. They are going to dominate the NIL. And that's a conversation for another day. But I just wanted to allude to that because that's exactly what Nick Saban said before all of that came to life. He warned everyone. He said, I don't know if anyone wants to do that because it's going to get even worse when they think it's actually a good thing. And I do think it's a good thing. 
but I'm I'm just putting that out there. But I just wanted to share that soundbite with you guys because it's a foreshadowing of what's to come. You think it's going to make things more even, confidence alignment. But guess what? It's just going to do the opposite. Listen to the man who knows all, and that man is Nick Saban. He's been in the NFL. He's been in the NCAA. He's won championships with two teams. It's just a foreshadowing of what's to come. It's absolutely true. Conference realignment is not going to do anything to make things more competitive. I guarantee you that. All right. Now let's hop into our discussion with Adam Wheel. This was a terrific interview discussing the Alabama team for this upcoming season. So without further delay, here's Adam Wheel. Okay, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is Crimson Tide sports fan Adam Wheel, or better known as the Assembler of the Gumps. Thanks for joining the show. And Adam, that's exactly where I want to start. Please give us background and the story of your journey on becoming the Assembler of the Gumps, or should I call you Father Gump, whatever works for you. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, I, I kind of started back in January, um, had a little, um, you know, as everyone knows, the emoji that blew up that I didn't really expect much of it, um, but it definitely gained a lot of attention. It was something um, that I thought would just be a little fun thing that people could do for the national championship, um, but it turned into something way bigger than I expected. Um, it turned into what people are calling movement. And it was just, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was really cool to see people come together like that. Um, but it kind of runs in my blood. My mom was actually a cheerleader at Alabama. Um, so kind of, kind of realized that's where I get it from. I've been an Alabama fan my entire life since I was born. The second song I ever sang was yeah, Alabama. So I've I've just always been an Alabama fan that love bringing people together. I love what, um, how the community uh, responds to big events like the national championship and um, it all brings people together and um, how ultimately sports bring people together. So um, I love it. And um, it's just been a, it's been a lot of fun for me. Um, I went to Alabama, I graduated last year, um, but it's just, bring people together in Alabama or something, two things that I, I really enjoy. And it's just, uh, it's been a fun journey so far. Yeah. And that's one of the most, probably one of the best stories I've ever heard from a social media aspect. It's just, I have, I still have the emoji in my bio. I'm still, I'm still following the movement as we speak. And if you don't follow Adam already on Twitter, uh, you should go ahead and give him a follow. You won't regret it, especially if you're a Crimson Tide fan. I don't know why you aren't already following him, but let's get into discussing the upcoming Alabama football season. I'm just going to give some initial thoughts that I had. Uh, I literally cannot wait for this season to start, and I'm not even joking about this. Recently, I've been thinking about this season so much that it keeps me up at night before I'm going to bed, and it's just because we're in that uh, twilight zone of the of the sports calendar when nothing's going on all you can look forward to is college football and I'll be so hyped up because I'll just be thinking about uh, the first time they come out on the field for the season with Thunderstruck just blasting and Brian Denny and Saban leading them like just leading them out as always and I get instant chills every time uh, that happens so I'm super excited to talk to you about this season because it looks like this team has the potential to historically be one of Alabama's greatest teams to, you know, ever assemble. So my first question for you, Adam, is what are your expectations for, for this team? And where do you see the ceiling reaching for this squad? Um, I would say ceiling being national championship. Um, I, I don't see, you know, too many flaws in this team. Um, been looking over, the depth chart a bit more and it's looking real nice. Um, I'm very excited for the transfers that are coming in. Um, we've got some really good guys um, expected to fill some important positions. It's a pretty new team in terms of transfers and people stepping up. So I'm excited to see that, but um, it's also, we've also got a lot more senior leadership at this point. Um, I was looking over the depth chart and we don't have as many sophomores and freshmen anymore starting like we did 
last year. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see how those guys step up. Um, I, like you said, I think this could be Alabama's one of Alabama's greatest teams. But I, I also think it's interesting because, um, like, I feel like we know a lot about the team, but I feel like there's a lot unknown about the team too with all these transfers um, that are coming in, like Jameer Gibbs, who's um, going to be our starting running back, but he's never taken a snap at Alabama before. So I feel like um, normally in the past we've seen guys um, get some minutes early in their career and then work their way up. Whereas now we're seeing guys that are, um, you know, going to step in and immediately make some impacts like Jermaine Burton too, and Tyler Steen on the offensive line. Um, so I'm excited to see how those guys do. Um, and I'm excited to see how it all connects. So hopefully, hopefully they're having a good summer and they have good spring. So hopefully, uh, hopefully it's going to be great. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think my expectations are exactly what I said above before I let you go ahead. It, I think this team has the potential to be one of the best teams in the program's history. And, um, you know, the defense is going to be like the old school Alabama squads of the 2010s, not really vulnerable at any position or any spot on, of the field. As for the offense, the only position that I would have a concern about is possibly the offensive line. Uh, if you watched A-Day, Bryce was brought down a bunch kind of a concerning amount but hopefully that will definitely improve and I know they had some transfers come in that weren't playing in that game so um, we also brought in a, uh, a new offensive line coach and he's had it both NFL and college experience so I'm honestly not going to harp on that especially because that was a spring game but anyways you could tell that even when this young group faced adversity last year there were still moments when you were impressed by what you were seeing and, you know, that ranges all the way from the Florida game, the lows of the Florida game when we almost, you know, choked that, that lead that we built up in the first quarter all the way to winning the SEC championship. And I know it sounds wrong, but I think losing the national championship to Georgia last year was, was and could be a blessing in disguise. And it's not like Nick Saban or Bryce Young needed an extra layer of motivation, but now they have a chip on their shoulder and it's going to be it's going to elevate this team to new heights along with, you know, natural growth that happens as you gain experience. And we've also seen in the past, whenever Alabama has, you know, quote a down year, which means not winning the national championship the next year, they come back and they remind everyone why they are one of the best dynasties uh, to ever exist. So my expectations are high and they definitely should be. Yeah, I completely agree. Expectations are always national championship at this point. Um, you know, it's crazy to say, uh, but it really is. And also we'll say that I'm, I realize how grateful and lucky we are to be a part of one of the greatest dynasties of all time. Um, and extremely lucky to have grown up in Birmingham, always been an Alabama fan my entire life and went to Alabama and saw a couple of national championships and been to some national championships. So it's, um it's it's very lucky and i'm i'm just very grateful to be a part of it and um here for the ride <laughs> absolutely i say this to my friends and family all the time you know i i truly believe that i you and i we went to the best school in the country um it's a terrific place to be a great place to get an education and we definitely need to be thankful for you know the the gifts that we get from our athletic programs and not just football you know everything so I did want to ask you this question what game do you have circled on your calendar this season which game sticks out to you the most the one you're most excited about so I would say Texas because I'm most excited um, to have somewhat of a different game I know we're going to be starting to play them a bit more once they join the SEC but for now, it's a different game, um, which I'm excited about. Um, but I'm going to have to go with Texas A&M like, as of now because of everything that happened with Jimbo and Saban, and uh, we lost to them last year. So that game is going to be electric. Um, it's going to be my answer for that. Um, I think that stadium atmosphere and Bryant Denny, I, I hope both teams are undefeated at that point. I'll just say that. Like, it's going to be a sold-out crowd. It's going to be an expensive ticket. 
Um, there's a lot of beef and I hope the beef picks back up because I'm interested for a, in a very exciting game. <laughs> I, I completely agree. I had the same answer as you. It has to be when Texas A&M comes to visit Tuscaloosa on October 8th. And this is a perfect script with the off season that you just mentioned that just happened. As you know, and as many of the listeners probably know, Jimbo Fisher and Saban are not on the best of terms right now after Saban's comments about Texas A&M allegedly buying all their recruits. And the key word there is allegedly. Saban has been, you know, he's been in Jimbo's head before and he continues to dominate him mentally. Texas A&M lost this game already, in my opinion, when Jimbo started, you know, crying in the press conference the day after Saban said all these things. And I could be wrong, but I think Jimbo, like, specifically scheduled a press conference about that just to defend himself. And it was just pretty obvious that it's all in his head, and I could not be more excited for this game. And like you said, I really hope the beef continues, really hope. It's, it's at an all-time peak when they come visit Tuscaloosa. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it gives us something to talk about normally. I mean, it, as if that's the only thing to talk about because, like, we still need revenge on them um, because we lost to them. You know, like, it's crazy to say we need revenge after we've beaten them so many times in a row, but can't beat us once and then expect to, uh, expect to get our <laughs> – catch us less than our best at the next time we play. <laughs> yeah, what do you think the the post-game handshake's going to look like? Do you think Saban is going to give him the quick little semi-handshake, no eye contact, and they just walk their separate ways, or do you think he might lean in, lean in and uh, say a little something to him? I think I think the first part. <laughs> I, I don't see there being very – I'm very interested to see what happens. Um, I don't know if they're going to make any contact before the game, like because I know they normally talk before the game, but I feel like that's not going to happen this game. Um, and they're going to—it's not going to—they're not going to be smiles. I'll say that. <laughs> I don't think there will be smiles. Yeah, I'm very intrigued. <laughs> I'm very intrigued about what's going to happen. And I also had honorable mention is the Texas game, like you said as well. It will be in Austin, and we're going to be in new enemy territory, and I can't wait for Texas fans that whole week to be chirping and talking to the Alabama fans on the Twitter timeline all week long. Also, it's going to be Sarkeesian versus Saban, and that's just going to be great. And we can see if Saban can continue his impressive record against former assistants and that atmosphere is going to be electric as well. It really does suck that it's an 11 a.m. kickoff, but I'm definitely planning on being at that game in Austin. Nice. I wish I could go. Um, unfortunately, work is not going to be able to allow me to go, um, but it makes it makes me feel a little bit better that I'm only going to miss an 11 a.m. kickoff. But that doesn't mean I have to watch on Fox Big Noon kickoff, and I'm not very excited about that. So. <laughs> Isn't that going to be weird watching Alabama play on Fox? Yeah, not not used to that. I can't remember the last time we played on Fox. It's got to be like a a bowl game. Has to be. Yeah, I don't have any recollection of <laughs> it being on Fox. It's always CBS with the uh, the historic crew. So, um, just going to be very very odd. Yeah, um, but and not only Sarkeesian are we playing, but there are so many transfers now at this mm -hmm. point that have gone to Texas. Um, you've got Ben Davis, who went to Texas. You have um, oh, I'm blanking on the names. You have Keelan Robinson, um, and then Ajay Hall, who just transferred as well. Um, so I'm I'm excited to see how that plays out. Yeah, and I also wrote down. Uh, for later on, another name, Jaleel Billingsley. Jaleel Billingsley. That's, yeah. I was thinking off the top of my head, him too. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of heat going on. Uh, really excited for that build up that week. It's, it's like welcome. Love how it's week two as well. Just welcome back to college football. Um, it's going to be great. Can't wait for that. My next question for you, Adam, is which Alabama player are you most excited to watch this season? Um, I'm going to have to go with Jameer Gibbs on this one because I've heard so much hype about him. Um, I've watched his highlights. He looks amazing, but from all the reports that have been going out this spring, this, 
in the summer. Apparently he is like people are saying he is going to be a stud. Um, talking better than Najee, better than Brian Robinson, better than any of these greats that have come in the past few years. And we've had some very great running backs, but apparently this guy is getting some praise. So I'm really, really excited to see how he does. Um, we saw a little bit in the spring game, but I feel like we didn't really get the full effect. Um, so I'm very interested to see how he does. And then also um, Tyler Steen, who's coming in from Vanderbilt on the offensive line. Um, apparently he's supposed to be incredible. Um, and hopefully he gives Bryce enough time to pass down the field to hopefully another transfer, Tyler Harrell from Louisville and Jermaine Burton from Georgia. Um, like I said, transfers all over the field. And like Nick Saban was saying, um, the transfer portal is only going to work out in Alabama's favor. And this off season, I feel like it's especially, ha- especially has. Um, so I'm really excited to see some of those new guys um, see how they fit into the program. Yeah, you and I are on the same page. Uh, I also have Jameer Gibbs, uh, running back transfer from Georgia Tech, and wow, this kick and ball. Um, like you said, if you did watch A Day this year, he was magnificent. I'm pretty sure he won the uh, MVP, but that really doesn't mean anything. We only got a taste of what is to come, I believe, and he can play in so many different roles. He can run you down the middle. He can play in the wideout in the slot. He can provide yardage off checkdowns and sweeps. He can go across the middle for receptions. Absolute great pickup from the transfer portal and a true Swiss Army knife that Bill O'Brien and Robert Gillespie get to. You know, they're just going to have a field day with them. And by far the most intriguing transfer for me, in my opinion. I did have on my honorable honorable mention. I do have uh, Jacory Brooks. We did see him fill in that slot for uh, John Mechie and others when they got sidelined for injury. But even before that, he was getting chances. I really do think he's going to have a breakout year. And I do know, like you just alluded to, we have some receivers coming in from the transfer portal. But it all started in the Auburn game when he caught that game-tying touchdown to send the game into overtime. And he stepped up to the plate, really shows a lot about his character, was not afraid of the moment at all. And I'm really excited to see him play more in a more prominent role this season. Completely agree. Dude's going to be a stud. I hope he gets drafted um, soon and he increases his draft stock this year. So um, yeah, he definitely showed flashes last year and hopefully it'll transition into something incredible this year like we've seen from past wideouts. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about, well, Alabama is turning into, uh, you know, an everything position university, but more notably, their their wideouts have been outstanding. I just asked you who you were most excited about, but who do you think could be a hidden gem for this team, a diamond in the rough that not a lot of people are talking about? So I'm going to have to go with Dallas Turner on this one. Um, I feel like people have definitely started to pick up on how good he is towards the end of the season and in the spring game he balled out in the national championship and in the playoffs and so people got a glimpse of what he can do but he really didn't get a ton of playing time during the season uh i think he's going to be the next alabama great on defense um like obviously will anderson is getting a ton of attention and he is will anderson is the guy and he is a stud and, he, and much so deserving. Um, he's much deserving, but uh, Dallas Turner, I think, is going to be um, a guy that's going to be talked about a lot more this season during the regular season. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think he's going to be an absolute standout on defense, as if the defensive unit and the defensive core needs anything else. We have him. I went with Cameron Latou, tight end. He's going to be Alabama's starting tight end this year. And he was the best wideout in that championship game for the team with he had over 100 yards and a touchdown. And he also had a career long reception of 67 yards. I think he should have been utilized more last year. But, you know, with Billingsley, like I said, in the rotation, it was hard for him to get involved. And as I just said before, Billingsley has now transferred to Texas. So I think Latou could be an absolute stud if they use him correctly. And He's a very underrated and physical player, not as mobile as Billingsley was, but very physical, can 
can uh, knock down defenders easily and is just a big guy, big presence. And I think he could be a great target for the, for the red zone come, come season time. I completely agree. And Alabama loves to have a great tight end. And I, I hope um, he gets a lot more, um, a lot more catches, touches this season. Um, he definitely has a ton of potential. I'm just excited to see how they use him. Yeah, me as well. All right, Adam. Well, this was great. Uh, thank you so much for joining. I would love to have you again on the show sometime if you're interested anytime during the football season. Can't wait to see what the Tide has in store for us this season. I completely agree. I appreciate you having me. Um, I'm looking forward to football season. I'm looking forward to more Alabama football and Alabama athletics in general on the timeline. Uh, it's a, It's been a good summer, but I'm ready to get back into the, the swing of things with uh, football season and then actually you know all the sports seasons I'm I'm very excited about and it's just kind of a just kind of a waiting period right now <laughs> yeah absolutely well roll tide appreciate your time yeah no problem appreciate it I hope you guys enjoyed that talk with Adam Wheel make sure you guys go follow him on the socials especially if you're an Alabama fan his primary social media of choice is twitter so definitely go give him a follow uh hilarious guy was really excited about that interview so glad you guys can enjoy that all right now let's get into some nhl free agency this past week was an absolute frenzy for the nhl as free agency took place and especially the first day it was literally non-stop i had my notifications on all day long uh all the journalists all the breaking news people i had them on all my notifications. And there were tons and tons and tons of acquisitions, some trades. But we're just going to go over the headlining deals that happened around the NHL because I don't want to bore you guys to death. The one everyone was waiting for was Johnny Gaudreau. It was Johnny Hockey. This was the quote-unquote big prize, if you will, for teams looking to acquire him. And to put it lightly, it was an absolute head-scratcher of a move. To give you guys some background, if you're not familiar... Gaudreau has spent his entirety of his career in Calgary with the Flames. He had a tremendous year last season with 115 points. So clearly, he's one of the highest producing players in the league. Terrific standout star. He's a stud. One of the best players in the league, bar none. The Calgary Flames rolled out more than just the red carpet for him to stay. They rolled out the red carpet, placed him at the head of the dinner table, had someone feed him caviar with a golden spoon, they literally did everything to get him to stay there. You want to hear the reported deal? It was somewhere north of $10.5 million over eight years. 10.5. And if you don't follow hockey, this isn't the NBA or the NFL where these players get $350 million deals. 10.5 is insane. Absolutely absurd for the NHL. And Connor McDavid is the highest at $15 million. And although Goodrow is a great player, he's no McDavid. McDavid it may be, might be the best hockey player to ever live, but that's a discussion for a different day. So the Flames offer him ten point five, and he declines it. And right as he declines it, and that's not a huge shocker, people. He wasn't happy there. You, you think he might want to move on to a winning program. It wasn't about the money. He declines the offer, and at the time of that, and at the time of that news, it was because he didn't see the Flames as a winning team in the future. Although they were one of the best teams in the West, which is kind of a head scratcher. They were one or two pieces away. They easily could be a winning team. The quote from him was, "I just want to go somewhere to win." That was the understanding of all fans. Those were his words. So this is where things get interesting. That was nowhere near where we're about to go. So there's rumblings of New Jersey, Philly, New York Islanders. Those were the three teams that were reported that would make sense. Those were the three teams that he wanted to go to or where everyone else thought he wanted to go to. And it makes sense because his wife lives in Philly and New Jersey is building something with a young nucleus. They're a very good team, very good young team. So where does he sign? The Columbus Blue Jackets. What? Nobody saw this coming at all. Literally nobody. It makes zero sense. Zero. I'm not even a Flames fan, 
and my blood is boiling just because of how dumb this deal was. He signed a deal with Columbus for seven years at 9.75. So he took less money and went to a worse team. Way worse. Columbus is one of the worst teams in the NHL, and they have nobody to help him besides Patrick Lane, who has had his doubts about Columbus this whole time he's been there. And you're, you're in Columbus? Who wants to go there? What do you even do there? And no offense to all my listeners out there in Columbus, if there are any, but it's not like, like, what do you guys do there for fun besides having Ohio State? It makes no sense. It completely shocked the NHL fan base. So all along, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about winning. It was just getting the hell out of Calgary. Absurd. I've never seen anybody. I've never seen anybody do that before. And if you want to, I guess I might give a little comparison here to the NBA. It would be like if Kevin Durant went to, I don't know, the Houston Rockets for less money. That's, that's what it would be like. That's what it would be like. Maybe not even the Rockets might even be too good. It might be like the Sacramento Kings. That's a perfect comparison. Some other notable movements were Vincent Trocek signed a seven-year deal with the Rangers. Obviously, former Hurricane. Definitely sad to see him go as a Hurricanes fan. But there was just no way that we are going to sign him to a long-term deal, let alone a seven-year deal. The good news is if you're a Hurricanes fan, they knew this was coming. And they were smart. They were always one step ahead of the game by going out and signing Jesperi Kokaniemi last year. They prepared for that. And now he's going to have to step up and fill in that 2C role for them. You know, it, it was a gamble. It's either going to pay off for them or hurt them poorly. And good luck to Vinny in the future. He's a great guy. Uh, really does kind of suck that he's going to the New York Rangers, who are in the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Division uh, with the Hurricanes. But great guy. Wish nothing but the best for him. Claude Giroux is heading north to join the Ottawa Senators on a three-year deal. And let me tell you guys, the Senators are building something right now. They're doing something up there. They acquired Giroux to bring it from Chicago. And now if you want to take a look at their front six forwards, you have Kachuk, Norris, who they just signed to a long-term deal. He's locked up long-term. Giroux, Dabrinkit, Stutzel, and Batherson. All of them scored a combined 166 goals last season. That's insane. So be on the lookout for them this year. We know the Ottawa Senators as a bottom feeder team. Not going to be the case anymore. Take notice now. The Tampa Bay Lightning re-signed both Anthony Sorelli and Mikhail Sergachev to eight-year deals, which was definitely essential for their competitive longevity. Palat was dealt to the Devils, which is a loss for them. Very good signing for the Devils, considering they lost out on the Gaudreau sweepstakes. But the Lightning have realized their objective. They need to hold on to their core guys, and they have done so. And those core guys are Stamkos, Kucherov, Vasilevsky, Sergachev, and Sorelli. And John Cooper has even come out and said, Anthony Sorelli is my favorite player to coach. So it's not surprising that he kept him. You can't keep everyone. But if you keep the guys, you're going to stay competitive long term. And these guys know how to win. So they're still going to be relevant. Don't shy them away yet. Stanley Cup champion Darcy Kemper is heading to the Caps. And Jack Campbell is heading to the Oilers in terms of goalies. Evander Kane is staying with the Oilers on a four-year deal. Andre Burakovsky is heading to the Kraken. Those are just some signings that caught the eye of myself. Um, those were the headlines that I saw. We also had some trades, not just signings. And I'm going to discuss the ones that obviously intrigue me the most within the Carolina Hurricanes organization. The first one that I want to mention was developing for a while. Throughout the buildup of the, in the, in the anticipation of free agency, we knew this one might have been coming, but it finally happened. The Hurricanes acquired Brent Burns from the San Jose Sharks in exchange for Stephen Lawrence and an additional conditional pick in next year's draft. I'm pretty sure it was a third round, third round draft pick. And at first, I was sort of pessimistic about this trade, but now I'm feeling significantly better about it. And listen, I know Brent Burns is old. He's 37, but he's still putting up great numbers. He's clearly the replacement for Tony D'Angelo. 
And Burns is just as offensively talented as Tony, with a way better skill set defensively. It's not even close. He's a much better defender all around. So if you want to compare the two, you still got to give Burns a nod over D'Angelo, even at his age. And he's got to be paired with Jacob Slavin. So if you are someone who has doubts about Burns' ability on defense, guess what? He's playing with one of the most underrated defensemen in the league and probably one of the best defensemen in the league. So everything's going to be just fine. He brings veteran blood to the locker room. He's tough, big, and physical. He's not going to get pushed around. He's a great player. And Rod Brendamore, when speaking about his signing, even called him one of the best defensemen in the NHL, which I would have said for sure five years ago. But still, very good player. And the best part about this deal is that San Jose is going to pick up $3.3 million of his $8 million contract. So we're going to pay him for his value at $5 million. We're not going to have to carry that burden with us at his age, which is very good. That was the best news about this deal. That's the thing that I was most concerned about. And that price tag is the same price tag that Tony had with this deal to Philadelphia. So all in all, I'm happy with it. I'm excited. I'm gonna. I'm very excited to see how it works out. How he's gonna play with Slavin. How he's gonna be uh, utilized on the power play. His creativity at the blue line. Very excited to see what he does for this team. The only thing that could be potentially bad about this deal is his last year of the contract. When he's 40 years old, he's weighing in age with production, and we still gotta pay him five million. But that was the best bargain we were going to get, and we'll see. I'm very optimistic. I like the trade. The other trade that I was absolutely ecstatic about was Max Pacioretty. The Canes acquired Pacioretty for literally nothing in the trade with the Vegas Golden Knights. We got Max Pacioretty. We traded away only future considerations. And that was something that Knights had to do because they were out of salary cap. So they had to dump him. They were at a salary cap hit, so they had no choice, and we wanted them. So it sucks for them, but great for us because this guy can score some goals. And it's exactly, exactly what we needed. Exactly. If you're a Canes fan, yes, let's go. This is exactly what we needed. He's going to be Nino's replacement, and there has been no update on Nino. He has not been picked up, which is absolutely crimeful. We haven't signed him. We're not going to sign him because this is clearly his replacement. Typical, similar build as Nino, more of a goal scorer, same position, around the same age. He's his replacement, unfortunately. I would have loved to keep him, but it's, I'm even more disappointed that he has not been picked up by anyone because he is such an underrated player. And if you want to cry about it, I get it. I get it. I wanted to keep him as well. But Pacioretty is a terrific replacement, if not better. A crazy stat that I saw about Pacioretty, I saw this on Twitter. His scoring chances are almost always resulting in goals, which is something that I harped on in the first podcast. The Hurricanes were the worst team in the NHL at capitalizing on their scoring chances. Dead last. This was the stat that I saw. In a 15-game segment last year, all these stats are in a 15-game window. He hit the net on 96% of his shots and scored 93% of them. Capitalized on 93%, 96% of the shots he hit on net. That is insane. This was just over a 15-game stretch, but still. This is what I've mentioned before. The Hurricanes are awful at cap- capitalizing on scoring chances, and we just got one of the guys who does just the opposite of that. Big, physical, plays the four-checking brand of hockey that Rod loves to coach. And I believe that he's going to be a terrific piece for us. He also knows this team is close. He said he said in his intro press interview over Zoom, he's very excited to play for this team. I think he's going to be a great addition to this locker room. Very, very, very excited to watch Max, Max Pacioretty join the squad. So excited to watch him play. He knows his team is close, just needed a couple pieces. Great thing for us. Great addition. Can't wait. Okay, now we're going to do some small news bits, or what I'm going to call now small bites. You guys like that? 
think it's good. We're going to stick with it. We're going to do some small bites. Robert Lewandowski is now heading to FC Barcelona. He's moving on from Bayern Munich. We knew that he was going to be on the move after some reports coming out over the last months of his unhappiness with Byron. Been such a great player for them, has brought them multiple championships, Champions League title, uh, German League titles, won individual awards. You know, he's a great world-class player. We knew it was either going to be a move to the La Liga or the EPL. I personally would have loved to see him play in the EPL. Uh, and I did hear some rumblings of potential swap for Ronaldo and Lewandowski to Man U. That definitely would have been a little bit far-fetched and bizarre. Uh, you don't see that happen very often in soccer, but I did hear multiple reports of that swirling around for a while there. It actually works out great uh, from a fan's perspective of, of soccer because we get to see him and Kareem Benzema play one another at the El Clasico every year. So that's just going to be an amazing, amazing, like get your popcorn ready because that's going to be such a great striker matchup on the pitch. Both sides will be elite again, so it's going to be Super entertaining for sure in both the La Liga and the Champions League. Uh, definitely going to be very curious to see where this FC Barcelona team is going to end up in the Champions League. Can't wait for soccer to start up again. Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks, perhaps? There's been reports going around that Donovan Mitchell at some point, key word, at some point, will be making a move to the Knicks. There really hasn't been any other team in the mix really only New York and I do think that this is going to get done but the interesting thing is who are they going to put together for a package and how long is this going to take are we talking the month of July August September maybe not even until February how long is the wait going to be and I'm going to tell you right now it's not going to be long I could see them throwing in possibly Cam Reddish, perhaps R.J. Barrett, maybe even Julius Randle after his down year. Maybe. Who knows? But the Knicks are clearly the most desperate team in the NBA right now, which is why I believe it's going to happen quickly. And they've been longing for their unsung hero ever since Carmelo Anthony left them. Don't be surprised if they do anything it takes to get Mitchell. If that means up to three players and five draft picks high perhaps even first round draft picks I think that's a real possibility they need someone to shine on their court in the garden they need to put fans in the seats they need everyone to be happy everyone needs to be singing their lullabies and their their uh you know everyone needs to be all sing-songy in New York all right this is what needs to happen for them they'll go to lengths to make Mitchell the biggest sports star in the city of New York and another question is do you think that'll be the case if he does go to New York do you think he will be the biggest star in New York? You have Aaron Judge, you have Igor Shosturkin, Adam Fox, you have other players who play in the play in the city of New York. But at the end of the day, NBA players are extremely popular individuals. So it probably will be the case. Very interested to see if this happens. I can't believe this news that I'm about to tell you guys. Juan Soto rejected the Nationals' long-term offer at 15 years, $440 million. $440 million. This deal would have made Soto the highest paid player in baseball history at just 23 years of age. And when you're a casual MLB fan, do people think of, like, when you're listing off the top five best players in the MLB, I could be a total idiot because I don't follow MLB that much. Do people put Juan Soto in their top five? Like, is that is that a thing? Because $440 million? Are you kidding me? You're telling me you're going to turn down $440 million? And I understand this is a 15-year commitment. This is your career. You're going to spend your whole life with this team. But wow, was I shocked. So now he's going to the open market. Looks like the Padres are interested, so we can keep an eye on that. And do you even comprehend what you can do with $440 million? Like, does that even resonate in your mind when they offer you that? Like, here, we're going to give you $440 million. Like, think about that. A luxurious house mansion costs what? $10 million? 
all right, yeah, you can have 25 of those. Here's 30 of those. Here's 100 Maseratis. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Definitely need to keep an eye on this development to see where he goes and what the value will be. I'm sure it will be nowhere near that, but just how much, what, what, what is important to him? What's, what's more important than $440 million? Wanted to bring up a little uh, interesting small bite here, the Tour de France. I really just brought this up for you guys because I wanted to start an argument or a debate about this subject. Not even really about the event itself. Is the Tour de France the hardest sporting event to win? And don't laugh at me when I say this because I know it's a bunch of dudes riding on bicycles at long distances. But don't laugh at me when I say this because it very well could be. Did you know that within 21 days, three weeks, they have 30, they have 21 stages. So that's six flat, seven hilly, seven mountain and five summit that cover over 2000 miles. They have just 23 days to cover 2000 miles. That's like 90 miles a day, every single day, no breaks. You have a, you bike 85 hilly one day. You have a bad day. You can't even finish the stage. All right, well, tomorrow you have to do 90 on a mountain stage. How does that sound? That sounds absolutely brutal. That's beyond beyond anything any human should be able to do. And these guys are the definition of world-class athletes. I also think it's really cool how the leader wears the yellow vest, and it changes every stage based on the standings. So the yellow vest means you're the leader, and whoever's the overall leader will wear the yellow vest like it's super cool some other sporting events that came to mind in terms of the toughest to win were the stanley cup winning a gold medal and the super bowl those were a few that came to mind for me that could compete with this but the fact that this is an individual sport and it's so grueling it you might it might it might just have to be at the top it might just have to be at the top but i want to know what you guys think please Interact with the social page on Instagram. I might drop. It might even drop a post or a graphic about this, a soundbite from this podcast. I want to know what you guys think. What is the hardest sporting event to win? All right, to wrap up this episode, we're going to go over this week's segment of Thornton's Betting Tavern. Around this time of the year, there's really no sporting events going on at all. I mean, we do have the MLB All-Star Game this week, and... I'm not about to lead you guys into a betting trap of betting on the MLB All-Star Game, let alone bet on MLB itself. So I'm going to go a totally different direction. Uh, I care about y'all's funds, trust me. I might have let my heart get in the way of the last uh, betting tavern with the Justin Thomas pick for the Open, but promise will not let you guys down this time, I guarantee. But you are going to have to stay patient with me on this one because we're going to head into an NBA future for this week. The NBA released their odds for the 2023 NBA championship, and at the top of that list, no surprise, it is the Golden State Warriors at plus 400, followed by them as the Nets, Celtics, Suns, and Bucks. Uh, these odds are on Caesar Sportsbook. Shout out to them for a free ad I just gave them, uh, but I did want to use their odds because I thought they were pretty pretty good. I think I'm going to go with the Bucks here at plus 750. I just have a feeling that Giannis is going to retake his throne this season uh i really do think he's going to assert his dominance in the eastern conference like we saw the year before this one they have familiar faces returning their big three returning middleton will be healthy finally and i just see them getting it done this year the odds are good too after them it's the clippers at plus 850 then there's a huge drop off at the heat at plus 1200 who could also be a good value bet that i did think about but i just don't see them winning out of the east with the Bucks and the Nets, and also don't sleep on the Sixers either. But if you do decide to place a bet on the Miami Heat, it could be a huge risk but high reward, and you would be banking on a trade with KD to the Heat, but obviously that is risky at this point. Looks like KD might not even be on the move after all. Uh, but yes, my pick is the Bucks at plus 750. Hope you guys ride this one out for, with me and stay patient as we wait on what is to come through. Good luck, friends. All right, friends, that is all I have for you on this episode of On The DL Podcast. Thank you guys again uh, so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me that y'all are the first ones uh, this early on to be listening to this podcast. So please tell your friends about the pod. 
Share it on your social media pages, on your stories with family members. Share it with whoever you want. And uh, please just continue listening. Give me some feedback if you'd like. Uh, Again, thank you guys for listening. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. Love you guys.